James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So we are at the end of our series in the book of James. We have been going at this now for, I believe, seven or eight weeks. And we have been systematically moving through James's letter one section of scripture at a time. One of the things that we've uh, noticed is that sometimes the, the concepts do not evenly distribute around the chapter breaks. And so although there are only five chapters in the book of James, we're now on the seventh or eighth week in our series, and we've been doing this for a specific reason. I believe that there are detectable portions in James, and we're going to review what those were. We're going to review our series very briefly here in a minute. After reviewing it, I want to look at four things. First, this call to patience at the Lord's coming. We ended last week's reading with verses 7 and 8, and I included them in this week's reading again because they are kind of a transition between one section and the closing of, of James's book. I want to look at how James calls us to imitate or to consider and then imitate or consider and emulate the example that the prophets set before us. And we're, we possibly will spend some time in Hebrews 11 reading a portion of scripture that I think James is, is at least he would be referencing or is explicitly referencing. And then I want to look at his admonition to be people who are devoted to prayer and those who are watchful for their fellow saints. 
And um, I, I think he closes this letter with this phrase, and we'll see this in greater detail at the end. He closes the letter with this phrase because as useful as the scripture is in showing us our errors, we also as a church ought to bear one another's burdens. We saw that in our series in our time in Galatians this year, how each one is to bear his own burden. And then Paul goes on to say, and you all are to bear each other's burden. And in this way, we form kind of, if you are familiar with the Roman army, they had this system of using their shields together to make one shield. And this notion of protecting each other and watching out for one another. I think that's why James is doing it. He's writing a letter to a church and this church is filled with people who are saints and those who are false believers. And because God's grace is powerful in saints, those saints read James's letter and then can begin to, like wise physicians and nurses, to attend to the sick around them. I think that's exactly what James is getting at in closing his letter with this. He's saying, I want you to remember that if you're wavering from the truth, if you see someone straying, and, and he's defined what straying looks like according to his letter, if you see someone straying, draw them back and call them back to reality. So we've spent uh, now seven or eight weeks in the book of James, and I believe I, I myself have been blessed in preparing the messages and giving them. The Lord is always so faithful to encourage us with his word. And it really has enlightened a few things about James's letter, I think for me and, and in conversations with individuals. Uh, it's also, I believe, brought a lot of clarity to the church. Specifically, we've been looking at James in the context of James applying the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord gave. And in fact, he quotes directly, both in this passage and many of the passages that we've examined, he quotes and directly applies portions of the Sermon on the Mount. He takes his hearers on a tour, as it were, through the Sermon on the Mount and then begins to press it out into our lives. This not just has apostolic warrant, but this is an apostolic pattern. What do I mean by that? It doesn't just show us what James believes to be the right use of the Sermon on the Mount, but it also teaches us how, as believers in Christ, we should take the word and apply it to our lives. And that's exactly James's main point. We've also seen the great effort that I believe we have fulfilled. My great boast and challenge at the first week was to show how James harmonizes with the writings of Paul and indeed all of the entire scriptures, both the writings of Paul, the Hebrew writer, if they're not the same person. That's my little hobby horse, and I'll end there. It, the writings of Paul are clearly mirrored and mapped. We saw in Romans 4, Galatians uh, chapter 3, and Galatians chapter 5, r phrases that are identical and terms, terminologies that are similar between James's doctrine of salvation by faith, which is manifested in works, and as Paul teaches it, salvation by faith that runs from the works of the flesh and how those are not diametrically opposed, but they are the same thing. And so those have been the two main themes, as it were, with regard to the scriptures that we've seen in this series. James is applying the Sermon on the Mount and James is harmonizing with the other writings of Paul and Peter and the Hebrew writer. 
So James begins his letter saying that there is a need for perseverance. We saw how the great promise put forth in our first passage was that we would receive a crown of life. We remember that great portion of scripture in Revelation 4 and 5, seeing the throne room of God and the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God. And they, they bestow upon him an offering symbolizing how their kingdom, this crown that they wear as elders, as priests and saints and kings, that they throw it before the feet of Jesus because he is the one who is the true king. And so I, I take this promise to be an extremely valuable promise, that, that this crown of life that James is talking about is some eternal reward that will never fade, that will never perish, that can't be lost and it can't be taken from us, that those who persevere will receive a crown of life, not of their own merit, but because of God's grace and that they participated by his grace in that grace. We saw that God's children must not only hear the word, but do the word. And that's why he's applying the Sermon on the Mount. If we simply read portions of scripture and we never then press them into situations in our lives and then obey because of the great promises of God, then we are not really doing the word. That's what James is saying Abraham did. True religion, as he says in the second reading that we had, true religion has pure speech. It has speech that is not accusatory of our brothers and not defiling. It's not of, an, of, a, of a subject matter that brings temptation. And also true religion, faithful religion, reality before God in, in piety is the practice of charity for widows and orphans, and then finally keeping oneself unstained from the world. That Christ was separate from sinners. Christ is a friend of sinners, and yet at the same time, a separate, he is separate from sinners, and we are to be likewise. James then goes on to describe the love for one's neighbor, which cannot be done while making distinctions according to circumstance. What do I mean by that? I mean that some of the holiest people who've ever lived and by holiest, I mean those who've been renewed after the image of Christ Jesus, they were extremely poor. And some of the holiest people who ever lived also have been rich. Now, riches, we see him in just a, a minute or two, we're going to get to his warning against riches. But he, he tells them to not make distinctions between poor and rich. And there is, there is somewhat a left-bent in the evangelical church that loves to emphasize the equality of the poor and that the poor are just as righteous if they're in Christ as the rich. And yet we must be careful that we not, don't turn the other direction and assume that just because someone has the world's blessings or this, this life's blessings, that they are by, necess by necessity getting those blessings through ill gain or evil or love of money. He's, he tells them not to make distinctions left or right, or poor versus rich. Don't make distinctions. And the tendency is that we tend to disregard the poor, but we ought to not let the pendulum swing from one error to the next and then assume that other Christians who have been blessed in material things uh, are necessarily wayward or weak or, or foolish. So love for one's neighbor does not make distinctions according to circumstance, and that includes wealth, but it also includes race. It also includes education, any, anything that concerns a quality or degree of life experience. We are not, as Christians, to make distinctions between people. 
This is extremely important because without this central idea, we cannot do mission because the people that we will do mission with and, and to will necessarily be different from us. If we do not have a heart that is willing to love our neighbor despite our neighbor's differences or, or weaknesses or, or unpolished behavior, then we cannot love them at all. In fact, we ought to emulate Christ in this regard, that he had nothing to compare himself with us. He was in the bosom of the Father, the eternal Son of God, dwelling in glory, eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And he hid those things as he took on flesh and came and became like one of us. I was at a conference a few months ago, and one of the pastors uh, mentioned that you know, he was trying to advocate his church being, you know, to go out and, and do mission. And one of the people in his church was having a difficult time with this, and they told him, well, I don't have anything in common with those people in that part of our town. And the pastor, by the grace of God, this is wisdom in case you ever feel this way, he didn't say, well, I'm glad Jesus didn't think that way. But it's so true. Would that we fully understand, and I would call you to this as we approach Christmas this year, that we would take time in Advent to, to give contemplation to what did Christ put on hold in the incarnation? What did he set aside when he came? And the eternal word of God who was, being spe- was in the act of speaking became the silent one, hidden in darkness and hidden in a womb for nine months, and then nursed at his mother's breast. I was listening to a sermon a few weeks ago that was just putting forth the glory of Christ, that he was simultaneously upholding the the worlds by the power of his word, and yet he was crying to his mother for the very nourishment that he would need, need to live. That is the humility of the God we serve, and that's the love that we have to imitate in loving our neighbor. So, uh, real faith begins and bears good fruit uh, bears fruit in good works. James is central the central controversy in James is how do we understand justification by faith which is manifest in works and it was harmonized very clearly in this that James is not creating a new doctrine but is actually harmonized with the entire rest of scriptures that our the aim of our faith is love from a pure heart that we that we ought to do good works in correspondence with our faith. And he makes a very clear statement that Paul would agree with quite well, that faith without works is dead. It's DOA, the, the phrase that some people use, dead on arrival. It's, it, there's no life in someone who is claiming faith, and yet there's no fruit. <clears throat> we saw James' central controversy with these people is one will say that he has faith. James doesn't grant the reality of that faith by that person's profession alone, but requires there to be a fulfillment or a walking in that faith in good works. Not just good works of charity, but the good works of putting to death sin in our lives. So, unbridled speech, James says, is a dangerous fire, but godliness produces pure speech in one's life. And ever since I preached this sermon, every single day, I have been confronted with, shouldn't have said that. I, I had one yesterday as I was leaving this fellowship with brothers. Eh, I shouldn't have said that phrase. It, it is amazing, the grace of God, but we ought to press on to bear fruit in that way. So left unchecked, our fleshly passions war against our brothers and produce boastings, prides, and a love for money. 
And this sort of boasting, James said, you know, do not say that, you know, today or tomorrow we will do this or do that. We'll go into this city and, and trade and make a profit. He said, all such boastings are evil. And I put forth a challenge that I want to reemphasize again. In fact, I'll, I'll share a little anecdote from my life, although I don't like doing this. Uh, I actually follow a Twitter account now, and it randomly tweets throughout the day, remember that you will die someday. And that's very macabre at one point. It, it is kind of, kind of, can be, you don't want to read that the first thing in the morning. But at the same time, I think the scriptures tell us, you know, teach our heart, let us, you know, teach us wisdom, that we would gain a heart of wisdom and count our days, that we would not presume on the grace of God, that we will get around to right living tomorrow, or we will really love our neighbor next season of life. This notion that we ought not to presume on the grace of God, as James says, all such boastings are evil. And what we saw that they supplant the authority of God and also seek to push away his sovereignty and his omnisciency. That, that is to say that we, by saying we will confidently do this tomorrow or the next day, we are saying that we know the counsel of God and that God, if, if we know the counsel of God and are wrong, God can't overrule us. It's, it's a sort of boasting that actually strikes at the very sovereignty and power of the Almighty. And so James calls it evil. James finally finishes his letter with a final reminder of the value of hope that is steadfast and a faith that is fully rooted in the promises of God. And he draws on the example of the prophets in order to commend us to be people who pray. And as we are going to look here in a few minutes at these prophets, we we know that these are men who lived before God, that they heard the word of the Lord and then they would utter that word to the nation of Israel and call them to repentance, call them to remember the mighty deeds of God. And then finally, James tells us to look after our brothers and our sisters. So, patience at the Lord's coming. James teaches his hearers, he he teaches his readers, that they should not presume to take revenge, they should not avenge themselves, but they should put their trust in and put their hope in a great final settling of accounts, which will come at a time that James calls the coming of the Lord. We saw last week that that coming can take multiple uh, fulfillments, that that coming in a real way was when the Lord came against the Judaizers and those who had rejected the Messiah and killed the apostles and killed the prophets. Jesus warned saying that all the blood from Abel to Zechariah would come upon this generation and that was settled and the Lord came in a judgment. And we saw how a few centuries later, God, as Jesus Christ reigned supreme on the throne of, of the world, he brought the Roman Empire, which was persecuting the Christians, to nothing. He delivered his people at a specific time and at the right time. And these people should not avenge themselves, but leave revenge to the Lord. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 12. Do not avenge yourselves, but leave a vengeance to the Lord, for he will repay. So James goes to great lengths in this portion to impress upon his hearers of the need to be patient. He says it three times in a row because he wishes to settle a controversy. Consider this for for a minute. You are a Christian in the first century. You have heard how they not only murdered the Messiah, 
but how they have begun to persecute the Christians. You've heard the story of Stephen's stoning in the city of Jerusalem. You've heard how at that point a great persecution flooded the streets of Jerusalem and pushed the church out into the surrounding regions, and how the Jews were so zealous for the traditions of their elders, as Paul uses that phrase, that, that they were then persecuted out of the land, that they were chased away, that the very nation who would not expel the wicked Canaanites and Philistines was so moved to expel these Christians, and you're running for your life. And James writes a letter to the dispersed people of God throughout the Mediterranean areas, and he says, be patient and wait for the Lord's coming. That you've been fleeing for your life and are very tempted. I think there has to be a real temptation in the body of Christ, especially among the zealous young men, to begin to fight back. And interestingly enough, James says to be patient. Paul tells the Philippians, I believe it's the Philippians, you, you gladly surrendered or put up with the plundering of your property. What an interesting perspective. I was reading a, uh, an account yesterday of the Coptic Christians who have been in persecution, extreme persecution in Egypt since 2011. Something has changed in the nation of Egypt that began in 2011. And, and recently, Copts were, you know, their churches have been burned and their, their people have been, you know, stolen out of their homes and drug, drugged through the streets and hands have been chopped off. It's, it's, a, it's a horrific account of the persecution. And one of their lead pastors or lead bishops, if you will, in their church, after a great uh, persecution that came on one church in which uh, the church was set on fire, I, I don't know how many people had died, but a, a number of them had died. He responded publicly and said, thank you for you have shortened our journey to Christ. And that sort of response, it cannot be made in the flesh. That sort of response has to be made by the Spirit of God overruling the passions of our flesh, which would try to fight back. And I think that's why James says this three times. You see, repetition in the Scriptures is a powerful force, and usually something that's repeated will be repeated twice. Truly, truly, I say to you. And yet here, he says three entire times, Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses the imagery of that which is sown is also reaped. And then verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then again, he says, do not grumble. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. James anticipates a soon relief for these people. And that relief is not, we're not always able to know exactly when it will take place, but James is convinced it will happen. It is sure, and he can tell them with confidence as an, apost as, as an apostolic witness that they ought to be patient and wait for the Lord to judge. James tells his hearers this three times in order to solidify. He is trying to let the concrete dry with the rebar firmly inserted, with the foundation be having time to settle and to mature and to cure. While clinging to the promises of Christ's presence among us, therefore, we ought to not only trust in them, but we also must be motivated to holiness. So we've looked at the context historically of what the church was encountering when they were reading these verses, but look at the final verse that he tells them. Verse 9, he's, he's not actually talking about strife in the political sphere. He's talking about how we are patient with one another. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. See, this is settling controversy in the church. See, we, we often will quote passages of Scripture in times of need, and, and we're good to do that. 
but we ought to also use passages of, of Scripture to call ourselves and motivate ourselves to holiness. For example, if we are feeling alone or we're feeling abandoned by God and we, we, we feel the providence of God is, is somehow far from our homes, we'll take this promise of Christ, you know, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, or we'll take a promise like wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in your name. And yet at the same time, whenever two or three are gathered, that's also sometimes when gossip takes place. We ought to realize the Lord is near. The Lord is present. I was listening to a worship song this week, and one of the lines was that the Spirit of the Lord is here. And I was just moved to this understanding of the fact that I'm living my life before the presence of God. That his omnipresence means that he is present to me, and I ought to give attention to his presence. So he says, do not grumble. Why? Because the judge is at the door. He could be listening in on your grumbling. You ought not to, to judge your brothers or to, to grumble against your brothers. James's command, therefore, not to grumble against your brothers can only be realized. It can only be obeyed. And in fact, it only has real application to Christianity that is lived in community. It is impossible to grumble against your brothers if you are watching TV church or internet church. There's no brothers to grumble against. And there's no brothers to be offended by. They're just not there. At worst, you would take offense with something they said in the video stream, leave a nasty comment, and that would be... But, but really, what James is saying only makes sense in the context of Christian community and Christian friendship. Outside of the community, there's no need to be told not to grumble. Likewise, only in community can, be, can we be refined by the constant testing that love for our fellow brothers and sisters produces. That sort of testing in which, in that moment where somebody does something that I don't like, whether it's sin or not, I have to respond in love, and I can't respond in the flesh. Not only do we see this in homes, but we see this especially in Christian fellowship and friendship. The greatest friends you will have in your life will still do things that annoy you, and that, that, are, that are sinful, and are also just annoyances in which it's your sin that's at play in the scenario. But, but nevertheless, even the most holy people you know will do things, will say things, which require you to love them. And that cannot be done outside of Christian fellowship in a church. Having told them to wait, James then reminds them of these prophets who waited. He says three times, wait, wait, be patient, do not grumble, wait till the coming of the Lord. The judge will settle these things, and then he remembers the prophets of old in verses, 11, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. These people were so shaped by the reality of the word of God, the prophets of old, that they endured horrific deaths and tribulations. I was debating whether or not to put this in the slides, and so I finally settled. I'm going to read verse, uh, verses 32 through 38 in Hebrews 11. If you don't have a Bible, just listen closely. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Those all sound like pretty victorious things. The men are rejoicing here. It turns at this point. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. 
the, the, the widow who Elijah went to. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 36 others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. We always think about the easy ones, like people would make fun of us for being a Christian or or accuse us of being silly or adhering to a dead old religion. But we never give much thought to being sawn in two. And the sobriety that this brings to the Christian walk is extreme. And this is what is at stake in our life. That these prophets considered the promises of God worthy of holding to when faced with the threat of being sawn in half. That's an amazing idea. And it's one that only the Spirit of God can produce. Nevertheless, James points them to emulate that sort of behavior. Those who persevered to the end are regarded as those who were faithful. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Just run through your head the memory of the prophets and patriarchs that you know of. Joseph is left for, for dead in a pit, and then they decide not to kill him and instead sell him to the Egyptians. That turn of fate really helped him quite a bit. And then he was, once he landed in the Egyptians, he was raised up to authority and then put in prison. Jeremiah, likewise, he went and was placed in a well, living in a damp, wet place. The sort of things that that does to your body are are terrible. Um, All of the prophets of old experienced these things. Ezekiel was told by God to lay on his side for years. And um, this notion of what they went through is ammunition. It's fuel for the heart of a Christian to contemplate that we might not be in any sort of delusion as to what we're doing in the Christian walk. As glorious as the church is in certain ages or certain times or circumstances, as much blessing that God pours out on his people, we still have to remember that these are the sorts of people on which, who, who carried the torch, especially the apostles as the first generation after Christ. This is the sort of experience of normal Christians. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate compassionate and merciful. Through the suffering permitted by God, Job lost all of his seven sons and three daughters, many servants, thousands of livestock, and all of his storehouses. Those Those other things, the livestock, the storehouses, they don't move me that much. I'm sure if this happened to me, that would play into my experience quite a bit at some point. But I just want you to think about this, especially you who are parents. The death of a loved one, especially a loved child, it's incomprehensible. The mind does not entertain those sorts of imaginations because the thought is much too horrific. And I'm not calling you to meditate on death, but at the same time, I want you to think about what Job went through in this first chapter of Job. In Job 1, he loses all of his children. A father or mother cannot even comprehend 
what that experience is like unless they've encountered it themselves. And then in the very next chapter, Job worships the Lord in Job chapter one. In the very next chapter, Satan strikes Job's health, afflicting him with boils and other forms of sickness, scratching sicknesses. And and Satan accuses Job to God saying that a man would give his entire life, a man would give everything that he has as long as he keeps his life and he keeps his happiness. And so just merely touch his body and he'll curse you. And God says, let it be. And then Job is told by his wife. His wife looks at the circumstances, presumes Job is somehow filled with iniquity and is being judged by God. She says to him, curse God and die. So the sort of soul affliction that your wife of your youth would do in those final words, you've lost your children, you've lost your empire, as it were. He had thousands of livestock. You've lost everything that you had. And then your wife, the one who is supposed to stand by you, tells you, you ought to curse God. You ought to die. You ought to turn away from your service and love of Yahweh. He's betrayed you. Curse him and be done with it. And Job then tells, it's one of the only places in the Bible I know in which this is said, he says, uh, a phrase like this is said, he says, you are speaking like one of the foolish women. And he, he rebukes her. He rebukes her because he then goes on to say, should we not receive from the Lord good as well as evil? Most Christians have no theology that can read the book of Job. It's especially in America. Nevertheless, Christ must be seen as Christians today. Christ must be seen as precious for the spiritual life and pardon that he grants rather than the blessings of material things. He absolutely must be seen by that. I, because we're here in the 500th year of the Reformation, the world is celebrating the great work that the Reformers did. Martin Luther is recorded as his dying words being, we are beggars, this is true. That is, as he was approaching the threshold beyond where his life was coming to a close, he did not pontificate on anything but the doctrines of the Reformation, which is, as people marred by sin, we have nothing that would commend ourselves to God, and that we come in with nothing and we go out with nothing other than the grace of God, shown about in the love of Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit. If we do not have that, we do not have anything. So, again, James warns us then of binding our actions under an oath, repeating Christ's warnings of exactly the same material. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. For, for people in our culture, it's, it's often difficult to understand what the Lord and what James in quoting the Lord are getting at but this sort of process of taking oaths or swearing performance is twofold. It's either attributing your performance to the power of that thing. So, um, for example, someone would say, by heaven, I'll go to market and take these things and do it. And they're attributing their performance or ability by that thing. And so the Lord warns us to not swear by heaven or take an oath by heaven or earth or any created thing but rather to let our yes be yes, to just speak in a humble way, saying yes or no, I will or I won't do that if the Lord wills and according to God's grace. So it's not just attributing, but also oaths are bringing curses or minced oaths is the phrase that some people use. A curse 
that says, may God kill me if I do not. And James would tell you all such boasting is evil. That is to say, if in your wisdom you promise a thing and God decides through his sovereignty to reveal that you will not be able to do that thing, you ought not to bring condemnation on yourself by swearing by that thing. For example, um, few, a few decades ago, it was more common for people to say, you know, I swear on the grave of my parents. They're kind of bargaining with that thing. And that's, that's folly. It's dishonoring their parents. It's playing with death. It's assuming the place of God. And so this is why Jesus and James, quoting Jesus, tell us, do not use oaths. Do not promise your performance. Do not gamble with fate. Do not presume that you are sovereign or almighty. Instead of calling upon some spiritual power to curse you, you should not, if you do not perform a duty, James points to entrusting oneself to the benediction of God. He he moves from saying, do not, do not make oaths, do not trust in spiritual powers, do not use witchcraft of speech, but rather direct your heart and concerns to God. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, James uses threefold repetition, just as he said, be patient for the coming of the Lord. You also be patient for the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble because the judge is standing at the door. He uses again a threefold repetition saying, is anyone X, let him pray or let him worship or let them pray. He uses this threefold repetition to empower his hearers to trust in the promises of God, that James is not hinting at something. He's strongly shouting that thing, which is to bring our concerns, to lift our hearts to the Lord through prayer and to trust in God, that he is not only a God who is powerful, but he is also our father who loves us with fatherly affection and care. Those who are suffering should bring their concerns to the Lord. Those who are joyful should express their praise to the Lord. And, and by this, we might understand James to be hinting at this, that any state of the heart should be lifted up to the Lord. Any state of heart, whether you're joyful, afraid, perplexed, confused, frustrated with life, in angst about the world, any state of heart should be brought before the Lord. We should imitate the psalmists who pour out their heart before the Lord in private prayer, who go to the throne of God and, and assail and storm heaven for mercy and benediction to come upon their lives, for, for people to gain insight. James tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord and not doubt. So this is what James is calling his hearers to do. They're, they're to direct their hearts to the Lord through prayer and to trust that God is powerful to answer. James commands confession of sin for spiritual recovery to be made. Verse 16, therefore, or in accordance with these great promises that I've just given regarding prayer, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here I do not believe he is just speaking about the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed by faith to all believers, although I do believe at one level he is talking about that. But also those in the context of this verse who are seen as elders in the prior verse, that those who are praying for the sick and hearing confession of sin, 
are, are able to pray for one another. That God is not a respecter of persons. However, the scriptures routinely tell us that God does not regard the prayer of the wicked. That it's a stench to him to receive the offering of those who wish to make sacrifice but do not want to offer up obedience. This is why Saul was rejected as king, because he presumed he could do some spiritual ritual without also having heart obedience. I think that's what James is kind of getting at here, that the, the power of a righteous person, or the, the righteous person's prayer is powerful, it is effectual, it is effective, and it works. Many Christians never confess their faults, and they entertain secret sins for years, all while claiming to walk in the light and to have fellowship with God. First John warns us, saying, if we have fellowship and yet walk in darkness, we are liars. And so many Christians live lives, they come into the church, whether it's through evangelism or growing up in Christian homes, and they live lives of secret sin for years, and they have never, ever been honest with a fellow brother or sister about their struggles, which they've not gotten victory over. I believe James would give a strong warning to these people that they are playing with spiritually dangerous matters, that they are counting righteousness and the defeat of Christ over sin as a trivial thing, presuming that Christ only, compare, only cares about the eternal state of our soul and has nothing to say about continuing sin in the life of a believer. Though the deeds of the flesh are evident, no one can walk in the light for you. I want to apply this strongly. No one can walk in the light for you. No one will take your spiritual walk as their concern more than you. They are unable to do that. The way that God has required men walk before him is an uprightness of heart. And that way is your responsibility. It is not your pastor's responsibility. Nor can a pastor discover secret sins. Now sometimes, by the grace of God, God will rebuke a person who is walking in darkness and he will bring something to light be sure your sins will find you out. If you grew up in a Christian home, you probably heard that growing up. Nevertheless, don't presume that God will use that method to, to bring you back from waywardness. Do not presume that you can tolerate rebellion in your life. Nevertheless, through confessions of sin, God brings healing to the soul that is embattled with shame and guilt. 1 John gives us the promise that if we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just, to forgive us of all of our sins, and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, shame and secret sin that are held for years can be wiped away by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. But he wants confession of sin. He wants light. He calls those who are dead into light and gives them life and equips them to defeat the temptations of the enemy. And that includes the temptation to be filled with pride concerning your fellow man and to not wish to ever have true fellowship in the light with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, having said that, I want to say that prayer for confession of sin should be done by a mature saint. You should not go to someone who you know is a new believer and burden them with your years of hidden sin and temptation that you routinely give into because I believe it will discourage them. You should give confession of sin to mature brothers. Brothers, not necessarily who are ordained, brothers and sisters who are, are mature saints who are able to handle confession of sin. What does it take for someone to handle confession of sin? It, 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 it requires two things. Obviously, a love for your neighbor, 
but, but these two aspects, a heart that will not be filled with pride about your fall that you've confessed to me, and the other thing is a, a heart that will not become embittered or consider you to be weak, and a heart that will not hold grudges, a heart that can say rightly, there but by the grace of God go I, that unless God sustains me, that I would be tempted by the very same thing. Galatians tells us that if anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, not you who are on the fringes of Christ, you who are spiritual, should restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. That is to say that those who are, are responsible for encouraging their brothers and sisters toward righteousness ought to do so humbly and, and guarding their own hearts in the process. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now interestingly, and this is why I believe James is saying that these things relate to common Christians who are truly walking in the light, not nominal Christians, not false Christians, not those who say they have faith and have no good works, but to true Christians, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Consider that for a minute. Elijah was a sinner who was redeemed according to faith by, in the promises of God. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just a man. He was not a man descended from heaven. He wasn't the incarnate son. He was not a super prophet wandering out of the mountains, having done battle with evil. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not give rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What I love about the poetry of James is he's saying something so massive here that if we don't remember the way that the scriptures use to speak about creation language, we miss the significance of what James, I believe, is saying by these phrases, that it did not rain on the earth. He brought it back to the time before Noah. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave its rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He released something in heaven which is to be said of the common grace of God, that God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. This is Elijah's doing through prayer. Now, clearly, we know that it is God who did these things. He answered the prayer of Elijah, but James encourages us, not saying that we have to be a super prophet or a super apostle or someone who is, you know, a, a holy, you know, mystic out in the wilderness. He says, Elijah has a nature like ours, like me as an apostle and you as the faithful saints who read the word of God, that Elijah was like you and he prayed and it was effective. Though Elijah was a sinner, he trusted in the promises and power of God and literally changed the world. That's what I believe James is saying, that Elijah changed the world. I remember watching a movie a few years ago and in this movie, uh, some of you probably will um, know which movie I'm talking about. But in this movie, someone shoots an arrow into this thing that is a giant dome. And it's this simulated world. And once this arrow reaches the zenith or the apex of this dome, everything falls apart. All of these machinations that they had invented it's to, to create this fantastic world, it destroyed the world. And this, I think, is what is spoken about the powers of darkness being defeated by Christ. As we sung this morning, that, that the moon, or that the sun was, was darkened, that the earth shook, that it shaped heaven and earth. Things which could be shaken were shaken. 
I think this is what James is kind of pointing to, this prayer made in faith by a person who was, sinner, who was a sinner and needed the grace of God. That sort of prayer changed the world. Heaven and earth were literally moved by a faithful prayer, and it was a simple prayer. Finally, then, James closes his letter, reminding his hearers of the sweetness of Christian fellowship in watching for one another's souls. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know, that is the person who brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just as Christ left the 99 to find the one, so also we must watch for those among us who are drifting from the truth and seek to restore them. We must do this. You are your brother's keeper, saint. You are concerned. Now, this is not a license to be a busybody. It is rather an invitation to the sort of living which would not, when you meet with a fellow brother or sister, want to just disclose everything that's going on with you, everything that God's doing in your life, but rather would ask the other person, so how are you doing? One of my favorite things, uh, Tom Kelby is the, the new president of the ARC, and we have a president emeritus here, of the ARC, and one of the things I love about Tom and the heritage that, that Ray has led and, and Ned have, have led in the ARC, the, the former presidents of the ARC, is they routinely, when encountering people, ask them all about their life. The sort of gracious and loving way of speech that makes room for the other person. And that making of room, the, the making yourself available on a friendship level or a heart-to-heart level so that you could develop rapport so that a person might be able to trust you with their concerns or with their struggles. We ought to know each other. We are called to a sort of Christianity that does not just attend buildings, and this is a, a great grace in our church, but I would call us still more to, to amplify and to fan into flame the gift of God here, that we ought to know what's going on with our brothers and sisters. Not that we're gossiping, not that we're looking for sin in other people, not that we've self-appointed ourselves as the ones who bring maturity about in others, but rather as the sort of people who could genuinely pray for that person for more than a few seconds and have their concerns brought to God. That should be our charge as Christians, and we should especially look out for those who are younger in the faith and those who need encouragement. There are deeply broken people who are coming into the church of Jesus Christ and they need your effort and my effort in order for them to be, to be blessed, to, be truly, to, to, to truly find a home in the family of God. Just as Christ made a covering, that is, he made an atonement, we are likewise called to cover those who are exposed to error. I did not always obey this verse in, earlier in my walk and... There have been times where I've seen my friends or acquaintances leave the faith and years later wonder if I should have done something different, if I should have said something, if I should have guarded them from material that I knew to be destructive. This is one of the the things that I love about our church. We have recommended books that we say, you know, we've read these and they don't seem to be dangerous and they're good for you. There's There's a whole section of Christians in the church today, which leave their feeding to their own choosing. They don't get any input on any spiritual materials, whether it's books or 
or worship songs. They just are adrift. They listen to sermons from whoever. And they presume because it's Christian that it is profitable for them. Brothers and sisters, there is a multitude of error that is at work on the internet today. Woe are we if we see our brothers and sisters entertaining false doctrine and do not say anything about it. Again, I'm not calling you to be a busybody, but if you encounter someone who is telling you about how they just discovered some you know, great spiritual wisdom and you know that that is actually a dangerous topic or a dangerous preacher or a dangerous sort of theology, you ought to warn them. You ought to call them to be on guard. So, this sort of life, the life in which it regards one's neighbor and, and extends oneself sacrificially to make that covering that, that would cover someone from the sufferings of life, whether it be temptation or worldly influence, that sort of love for neighbor is the fulfilling of the second commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do for them what we would wish someone would do for us. And that sort of emulation, that sort of behavior and and style of life is nothing less than the imitation of Jesus. I believe that's chiefly what Jesus' earthly ministry was about. It was reaching to those who were marginalized by the religious system of its day and its hypocrisy, and also reaching to those who had been so marred by sin that they had no means of approach to God that Christ covered the gap. He, made a, he stood in the breach and he extended himself in love and in service to our neighbors. I believe that's why James closes with this. He's given us warnings chapter after chapter, verse by verse. And he says, don't just look to yourself, but also have concern and love for your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We, we love your word. Oh, that we would love it much more. God, we pray that you would take these things that James has said to us and that you would work them in our heart. We pray for the transformation of the Holy Spirit, which would not only persevere in suffering, that would not only stay steadfast and lay hold of the example of the prophets and the apostles, and that would not only pray and and bring concerns to your throne, but also that sort of transformation of heart, which would make room to love our neighbors and to do the risky the risky act of confronting where it needs to be confronted and encouraging where it needs to be encouraged. Lord, we thank you so much for the church of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless her and glorify her, that you would wash her with your word and that you would equip her for every good work. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.